welcome to my faculty podcast at Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Research Quality. I'm Dr. Lee Stoutlander, and with me today is my guest, Dr. Leilani Gelstad. She's the head of the Institutional Review Board at Walden University. Our topic today is going to be COVID-19 and data collection for dissertation students. Welcome, Leilani. So happy that you're joining us. Thank you very much. I guess to start, so the information that we're going to talk about today, is this mostly related to Walden? Do you think it would be applicable to other people? You know, I do think that most of the data collection adaptations that researchers are having to make right now are going to be applicable across the board, regardless of institution and regardless of location. But I would say everything we talk about is going to be dependent on what are the restrictions at any given place at any given time. So it may change by state even, right? It could change by state, by country, and by county in some situations. Um, one term we're hearing a lot of is essential activity or essential services. And that is being used as the criterion in a lot of communities for determining when um, some face-to-face -face interaction is advisable or permissible, depending on how that community has framed the restrictions. And so social science research is not considered an essential activity um, at our university. I suppose other universities may make a different um, determination, but as far as I can tell, the only research that's considered essential research at this time is medical research uh, that's ongoing. The student had originally planned to meet with people in person, either doing interviews or a survey or something. What are their options? Well, we have students at a lot of different phases of data collection, of course, meaning some of them got their IRB approval, let's say in January, and when all of this COVID-19 stuff popped up, maybe they were just at the tail end. And then we have students who are, you know, just got approval uh, yesterday, and, you know, we're well into April, and most communities are well into their, you know, restricted phase um, due to COVID-19. And I would just say the key theme is that we are encouraging uh, researchers to, to adapt. In fact, what we did at Walden is on March 12th, shortly after we recognized at a, in the United States at a national level that there were um, you know, going to be emergencies declared and that there were going to be changes in our activities um, coming um, it, on March 12th, we issued a global approval to all of our active researchers who currently had an active IRB approval to permit them to immediately adapt their data collection from face-to-face -face format to one of the other um, online or uh, non-face-to-face formats, such as phone or video conferencing or email. And so that's how we, our university has chosen to handle all of those situations where the researcher already had their IRB approval and their proposal approval prior to March 12th. 
And for anybody who is still in the IRB review process after March 12th, then we've been advising those students to go ahead and adapt their materials to be inclusive of a variety of options. In fact, I just want to say it's, it's a bit of a mistake, I think, to just replace face-to-face -face interviews with Zoom interviews. I think that's, for some people, a, a logical and easy type of solution. And um, that's a bit too narrow. And I think, here, and here's why. Um, for one thing, Zoom is great. It, I think a lot of people perceive that Zoom is you know, head and shoulders above the other platforms. But ultimately, um, Zoom is just one of many. And I, I hate to, um, for us to discount the value of a phone interview. Phone is a technology that most people understand easily, and most people have phones. Um, the difficulty, of course, with using Zoom is that for some people, they um, even though Zoom is relatively easy, um, there are some folks who find it challenging. And if you don't have sufficient bandwidth, it can be really frustrating to hear and um, understand. Um, the person you're talking to, and it could end up wasting your time if that data collection um, isn't, if the, if the interview data is not clear enough, intelligible enough to um, be able to transcribe and analyze it. So um, rather than just replacing face-to-face -face interviews with Zoom, we're recommending to students that they write their recruitment materials and their consent forms in a broad and flexible manner to include multiple formats and to give participants the option of choosing to have video conferencing or choosing to use phone. For certain types of studies, it might be an option to give them an email option. And I mean, that won't work for every single qualitative study, but for, for some it could. And we're also, um, we're advising that they don't get uh, too hung up on naming Zoom or Skype specifically because if they use that in their recruitment, um, again, participants might not be aware of that what that is, and that you know by allowing um, multiple options, you're going to keep your study accessible to even those who have limited bandwidth um, in their internet. Maybe they have limited devices. Maybe their kid is using their computer for homeschool or for you know um, online homeschooling at the moment, and um, and maybe their life is so busy right now that they might need to you know do a, choose a phone interview so that they can talk to you while they're doing something that's essential in their lives, <laughs> like um, you know going for a walk or folding the laundry or something, so that. Um, we, we want to encourage researchers to, um, you know, try to be as flexible as they can for their participants' sake. So how should students handle that in their proposal? Do they go back and change their proposal? Do they mention it in Chapter 4? Well, and this is really tricky, especially for those students who are in the proposal development phase and they are not sure of whether the restrictions will be lifted by the time they get the proposal and IRB approval. So what I would recommend is, um, and frankly, I've always kind of been a fan of allowing multiple formats. Uh, different committees, of course, will have different feelings or, or perceptions about, you know, is face-to-face -face the gold standard and, and it, you know, 
anything else is is less than or um, you know how how much do you lose when you switch to video conferencing versus how much do you lose beyond that if you switch to phone um, I think students should discuss uh, those alternatives with their committees and also um, seek out some of the literature and understanding I mean I would dare say just to, to venture I, I feel like it's it's a popular opinion amongst researchers that face-to-face -face is better than phone. And I'm sure there are a lot of, uh, you know, viewpoints and, and uh, perhaps even data to support that. But an alternative point of view is that there are some things that perhaps could even be easier over the phone. Like some sensitive topics might be easier over the phone. Um, for example, you, you could do anonymous phone surveys um, you can do, um, most of us have experience with talking on the phone, whereas not a lot of us have experience with video conferencing. And so for some people, honestly, being on a camera can be so disarming and distracting that it takes away from the quality of the interview. So I think it would be a good idea for students, uh, researchers to consider these options and, and briefly address them in their proposal. And, and this is aside from even our COVID-19 restrictions. I, I perceive that um, with a lot of social science research, depending on how you've defined you know, the scope of the study, there's a lot to be gained by taking away the requirement that participants come to you to meet with you. Um, because of course we know there are a lot of assumptions with, um, okay, they have childcare, that someone else <laughs> is able to watch their children, that they don't have to work, that they can afford the gas money to come meet with you. So in many ways, I think in general, we should be talking to student researchers about what, in what ways do the formats we choose possibly limit or bias our findings, and how can we thoughtfully address the, well, how can we thoughtfully consider these impacts? And as we're interpreting our findings, and um, in the interest of you know including a wide variety of perspectives and ensuring that all socioeconomic classes are represented and that you know single parents are well represented in samples, I really believe there's a lot to be said for permitting um, phone and/or video conferencing formats when meeting with you. You know, it is a luxury to go meet with someone one-on-one -on -one for an hour. I think most of us can recognize that if you say go spend an hour to have lunch with a friend or coffee with a friend, that's that's kind of that's special time that's carved out and that participant is giving you a gift and not all participants can afford to give you that gift. I maybe after this there will be even more growing literature on the various pros and cons of data collection format. But um, I think as long as the student and the committee have thoughtfully considered the options, it doesn't need to be like a whole new section <laughs> or, or anything like that. But just um, it, it's something that it has always been impacting our data collection. And I, I've seen a lot of variability in how thoroughly the committee and the student have addressed it. And I feel like it does occasionally come up in the um, Sometimes in the chapter five, when the student is discussing, you know, the implications of the study or future directions, and they might reflect on, well, it could be that I had a bias sample because I needed to meet with them face to face, and not everyone in this 
um, population is able to take the time to meet face to face. Um, but I think it would be great for students to um, consider it at least in the proposal process. And as far as I know, from a pragmatic standpoint, I don't think that there have been, you know, pushback, like a failure to get proposals approved because it's it has not been addressed. Um, and, and literally, because this is such a dynamically changing landscape, um, you know, just a couple weeks ago, people could still meet, but had to stay six feet away. And then, you know, the numbers, uh, like a focus group would have been possible but then as the restrictions got even tighter, all of a sudden a focus group is, is not something uh, that's permissible in a lot of locations right now. So I think it's a good idea for the proposal uh, to remain somewhat flexible um, to, the, to the degree possible um, in allowing the student to adapt. And I, I really can't see the phone option going away at any point. Um, so that's a good one to include, I think, in every qualitative study that, that would have involved some sort of interview. Okay. So how do they handle the consent form if they were originally going to have them sign it? Do they need to have them scan it? Or what do you suggest? That's, that is a great question. Um, scanning is no fun. No. <laughs> scanning is really... Those of us who, you know, when you go on a business trip, uh, scanning those receipts is always such a pain and it's just not fun. <laughs> and so we really discourage uh, researchers from using that method. It's, it's just kind of a drag for your participants and you probably will lose people who think, eh, I don't feel like doing that. So we really strongly recommend that you not ask them to print and then scan and send it back to you. Now, will we approve it? Yes. If for some reason, um, I can think of a few very limited situations when the student has made an argument that that's what needs to happen because in their environment, ink signatures are still how it goes. <laughs> and they still feel they need to get an ink signature and have an ink signature on file, even if it's a photograph of one. And those have mostly been overseas situations and a couple of very traditional like government types of situations like military and, and, and it was a while ago it wasn't in the past five years so we strongly recommend um, that researchers be open-minded when thinking about how to document consent there does need to be some action taken by the participant to actively indicate consent um, the term passive consent is something that was done prior to the 90s, um, way back when. A lot of times it used to happen in schools. There might have been um, a passive consent process where let's just say the, you know, the school might send home forms and tell the parents of the kids, we'll return this form if you don't want your child to participate. Passive consent is no longer <laughs> acceptable. Um, and yeah, it used to be. I guess it, it worked for a while. Um, and so as long as there is an active consent action. So let me give a couple other examples of actions. One that I think we're all familiar with is when you say let you download some new software and it has this agreement that you, you know, click here, click I agree in order to download the software. And then it's up to the person, you know, how thoroughly do they want to read that? 
Um, that's acceptable. I think that um, what a lot of our researchers do is, um, and this applies a little bit more to online surveys, a lot of our researchers will put the consent information or the consent form on the first page of the survey, and then at the bottom, depending on which survey platform it is, they can either set it up to say continue or uh, next, or in some customizable platforms, you can change the button so that it says I consent. Um, and, and we're very flexible at Walden anyway with how that is configured as long as it requires the participant to take an action to indicate their consent. Um, in some cases, it, you know, the old school paper and pencil format, we might have said to indicate your consent, just return the survey completed. And that's a good way to collect consent anonymously because you don't need their name at any point. Now that still works in this COVID situation. Um, I don't think we have a whole lot of researchers using postal mail, um, but it, it's still an option. <laughs> and um, and I forgot to mention the March 12th approval we did did include postal mail. <laughs> it's just not a lot of people choose that option. I guess you know incurs some extra cost. But um, a lesser known and frequent a less uh, frequently used option is to obtain verbal consent and there's a caveat here verbal consent is not very frequently the best way to document consent but it is one way to do it now an example where we might approve a researcher to obtain verbal consent which then has to be audio recorded and transcribed might be if someone, if one of our researchers is conducting a very sensitive study involving discussion of illegal activities, and it's a phone interview. And we might say that, all right, you know, cover the, the consent information and then ask them to verbally consent. And the, the thing is, is you have to transcribe that whole dynamic. And I think some people are a bit you know, turn off by that because that's a lot of extra transcription to do. But it is an option that provides anonymity for um, a qualitative interview, which you know that can be really challenging. You really technically cannot do um, qualitative interviews anonymously when it's face to face because unless you're a priest using one of those confessional boxes, you are seeing who you are collecting data from. So it's not truly anonymous. However, it is possible um, if you're having, if you want to conduct anonymous um, qualitative interviews to provide your phone number and have them call you, you know, they can choose to block their number. And, and we've had researchers do this when they are um, studying, um, a study that pops in the top of my head is, um, uh, a study of uh, ayahuasca use, which is a shamanistic practice of, it's a hallucinogenic um, uh, substance that people take as part of a shaman ritual. Okay, and, and that substance is illegal in the United States. And this, this researcher was um, wanting to interview people about their experience with this, it, with this illegal activity. And so we had the students set it up to where they, the participants contact the researcher um, and are able to participate anonymously. So th there are quite a few options for documenting consent that um, work with virtual and um, you know non-face-to-face formats. Um, I would say we're very, very open-minded if the researcher has another suggestion. Some of the easy ones 
are, you know, asking the researcher to check a box or to provide their initials. You know, there are there are a lot of variations on that that we see, but I think the most common one is click here or next to consent. Oh, and I forgot one very easy one, which is commonly used for um, interviews when the initial contact was email, and that is when researchers invite the participant to email back the words I consent in order to document their consent. And it's again, there's flexibility there even. You could even instruct them, please email back the word yes. And um, we, we allow for flexibility depending on how the consent form is worded, who the audience is, and what the relationship is between the participant and the researcher. Yeah, that sounds easy enough. How about if a student had planned to use an organization, but it's one of these ones that have had to close. What would they do then? Yeah, that's a really tricky situation. We we definitely have a couple dozen, if, if not more, students who were originally planning to collect data in, let's say, like a healthcare organization that is just too overwhelmed right now to partner in a study. And so, there's a Walden-specific answer here, and, and that is that students should talk to their academic advisor, their student success advisor, about putting their data collection on pause. Um, and I'm not going to try to speak to what that process is. The advisors have all the, the forms, and there's a special process for COVID-19-related um, incompletes or, you know, taking a, a brief leave. And it's understood that you have no earthly idea when you can resume the study. And so that flexibility is, is part of what the advising team has available for students. Um, I would say in general, I, I did talk to a student in IRB office hours the other day who was trying to get in touch with, I believe it was healthcare administration workers. So it's people who are there on the front lines in that they work in the hospital building, they're not the frontline care providers. However, they're ex you know experiencing a lot of extra activity at their workplace. And I think, in, so in some cases, the student was able to still issue invitations, but was noticing a much lower response rate than she was expecting. And I mean, that's a whole nother issue, <laughs> it, just in terms of sometimes, I would say student researchers uh, sometimes have a, don't have a realistic expectation of, of what's a normal response rate. I think we maybe talked about that in one of our previous podcasts, but sometimes students are expecting, you know, like 50% or 80% response rate when actually a 20, <laughs> a 20 or 25% response rate would be a mate would be great. And um, in today's, current situation here in early April, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of researchers are encountering, encountering an even lower response rate just because people are overwhelmed. Now, I would recommend to the student that they do try to at least assess, rather than just assuming that they should assess what is the availability of my potential participants. So here, let me give you an example where this is an important step. Um, with healthcare, it, I, I think most cases were pretty clear that no, this, this data collection is not going to happen anytime soon. Um, best to put it on pause. School-based data collection is another story because 
in most cases, let's say you were originally planning to collect data from teachers. Many teachers are still actively checking their email addresses, other school work address. Um, they are still engaged in many cases, not all, in the activities that maybe you, you know were relevant to the study. And, and there are a lot of school-based studies that can go ahead and continue. It's just you might have to be a little more patient as uh, the participants are volunteering and maybe have fewer time windows to speak with you. It's, um, you know, so the, the alternate format is that rather than you just saying, okay, I'll be at the school every afternoon this week, you're, say, you're actually able to tell them, I'm happy to do a 30-minute phone call whenever works for you. So in some ways, this is ultimately giving the participants even more flexibility and allowing them to, you know, be doing what they need to do if, if it's being at home or whatever um, with their families. But um, I've seen a few people with school-based data collection overreact a bit and assume that it's a no-go. And when I remind them that student researchers collect data during the summertime, all the time. Every year we, we literally have dozens if not hundreds of studies happening during the study time, I'm sorry, during the summertime that are school-based and it sometimes requires a bit more of a creative approach to um, getting in touch with the students or in touch with the parents or in touch with the teachers, but it's definitely doable. And I think as, as we've been having committees and students brainstorm about what are some alternative options, in some cases, we have told students, well, okay, you were originally planning to reach out to individual principals and then ask the principals to let you, you know, come to a faculty meeting and talk, blah, blah. You could also consider what are the teacher's contact information on a public website. You could reach out based on that publicly available contact information. And sure, teachers are busy, but if they are interested in doing your study, they, they may volunteer for it without you having to go through the principal as a gatekeeper. And, and that is appropriate whenever their contact information is public. That's an option. And so a lot of our students have been doing that and using things like LinkedIn um, to find people in certain professional um, categories and also using snowball sampling and their own professional networks. And, and sometimes, you know, committees may have thoughts about how this could weaken the study, you know, or introduce bias in the study, so they, the student would have to deal with those issues. But in other cases, um, you know, there's the seven degrees of separation or even the two or three degrees of separation can, in many cases, help the student get a very appropriate sample if they um, do snowball sampling, starting with their own professional networks. All right, one more question for you. So if a student was planning to recruit participants in a public location, can they still do that? Do they need to come up with some alternatives? Right, well, yeah, they just closed the beach in my area. So yeah, exactly. public locations are, are less available, and so we encourage those students to consider public virtual locations. And even before the COVID-19 stuff, I'd say, um, I just saw a figure, I want to say it was 19 or 20 percent of our students, even before COVID-19, about 20 percent were already planning to recruit and collect data online, and at least half of those were using social media to recruit. And sometimes it was in addition to other methods, but 
um, sure, think about what groups within um, any of the social media, uh, media formats like LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram have been used, but less so. Um, I think Facebook is the most common one, it, particularly because there are a lot of groups on Facebook and sometimes posting a flyer to a group can be an efficient way of um, reaching people who have a, a certain interest or a certain um, professional um, expertise or, or uh, practice. In general, like I, like I mentioned earlier, because we're not sure when these restrictions will be limited, we are advising students to ideally don't completely revamp your study, but build in multiple options. So if you originally were planning public, um, keep it in there. I mean, it's not like we're going to say you're not approved because you said you're going to public, because we are giving all students the global notice that, okay, I see you have that in your materials, but obviously you can't do it until restrictions are limited. I'm sorry, until restrictions are lifted. Building in multiple options, um, such as both social media and public flyers, that will give the student the flexibility. Let's say the restrictions are lifted in their area a month from now. If they're still collecting data, then they could you know, take advantage of that. And if something changes that the student had no way of foreseeing or um, just all of a sudden they want to do something different, maybe because the response rate is not what they had hoped for. Um, you know, we have a process. It's called the Request for Change in Procedures. And essentially, the student would just update their materials and send it in and will uh, evaluate the request. And what we're doing at Walden is any of the COVID-19 related requests, we are uh, doing a fast track approval for those. So we're doing our very best to get to those within two business days instead of the typical 10 business days. So essentially they're getting bumped to the head of the queue if it's anything COVID-19 related that um, a researcher is requesting the change. Okay, one question that I've had before from students is if they want to post on social media, can they just go into a group and put an ad? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, with Facebook, Every group um, has some sort of moderator. Well, some of them take a role of moderator. Others just were like sort of the group founder. And if there are any rules in a group, in the group, then our researcher would need to would need to be responsible for finding out are there any rules. And some uh, moderators, you know, will take down posts <laughs> um, that weren't that don't fit the guidelines of the community. And so we advise our researchers make yourself aware of the guidelines or rules within each community. Um, you don't need to have written permission per se um, to to post. Let me put it this way: you don't. Walden doesn't require that you have written permission. However, it's possible that the group moderator may require some sort of permission. In a few limited situations, like very, very few, we've had moderators of groups want to see evidence that the student is actually in a doctoral program. Like just, they wanna double check the legitimacy of the study because they don't want the members of the group exposed to potentially what, you know, might be a scam or something. And, and you know, that's, their effort they're making to protect their group members. And um, in those cases, we have the student 
generally just uh, print out or you know virtually print <laughs> using the PDF function a copy of the proposal approval and I would say like once a year some partner out there organization or some moderator asks for a letter from someone at the university maybe from the chair from the IRB just can you confirm that this study has been fully approved and vetted before we post it um, because we just want to make sure for our group members sake that it's a legitimate study awesome well, thank you, Leilani. Is there anything else that you feel people should know before we stop for today? I something has come up um, from some of the uh, faculty supervisors of students, and I think it's applicable anytime. But it has come to my attention that some students were um, viewing it as more relevant during this time. Um, when they're feeling stressed about not being able to recruit a sufficient sample sets in this, you know, very busy time. So I have put together a couple guidelines, which I could run through pretty quickly. And then just to give a little preview, maybe, Lee, we could do a future podcast on this other topic mm-hmm. because there's so much to cover. Um, but and also within our IRB office, we're going to be doing um, either a webinar or just a recorded video with some examples. So. And this this issue is how to maximize your response rate. And if you're going to put an invitation out there, like I said earlier, um, for most social science research, I would say a 15 to 30 percent response rate is normal. A 90 percent response rate is unheard of, but it occasionally happens. (laughs) And then, you know, a zero percent response rate is a real bummer, but it occasionally happens and then I've worked with students I've said well let's take a close look let me look at your flyer let me look at what did you send out exactly what was your subject line and that's given me a lot of insight into some of the reasons why people either have um, had some barriers so let me just kind of give the highlights here there are three main things to consider um, in trying to maximize your response rate one is the presentation and the wording of your recruitment flyer or your recruitment email. The second thing is your data collection format, which we've talked about a lot today. And the third thing is thank you gifts, which can get a little bit controversial sometimes. So I can just briefly touch on those if that's okay. Sure. All right. So the first thing is a recruitment flyer or email. I am shocked at how many students write their recruitment flyer as like three long wordy paragraphs and no (laughs) no nobody wants to read long wordy paragraphs about anything these days and certainly not about your study and so um i i really encourage them to use bullets not paragraphs um to to just think of it as you want to respect their time and Try to make it really salient and obvious to the participant. Uh, Briefly tell them why it's important. Uh, Briefly tell them how much time you're asking of uh, from them. So is it a 20-minute survey? Is it a 30-minute interview? Briefly tell them if you're going to be providing a thank you gift, like a $10 gift card. Also, the most important thing that I see students leaving out is the time frame for data collection in their invitation. It uh, many invitations or flyers read as though you'll be conducting this study for the next year, 
And it's really important um, to say, like, if I were putting one out tomorrow, I, and, you know, it's April 7th today, I might say, until April 20th, 20-minute uh, interview, $10 gift card, like, just putting out the basic information. If you leave the time frame wide open, then a lot of people who might find your study interesting, they might think to themselves, oh, Maybe I'll I'll do that, you know, when my quarter's done or when my semester's done, <laughs> and by then your study will be long closed. So um, to say or say next two weeks, something like that in your invitation, so they have some sense of um, what the available time frame is. And so soon we'll be having some samples of potential flyers to use. We're not going to start dictating how flyers need to look or anything like that. It's just I've realized that some students, it's it's not intuitive for everyone. Um, and you have to be sensitive to the idea that when people read emails, since a lot of our students invite participants via email, when people read emails, they're scanning, and you're probably not even going to get a click you know, for them to see the content of the email, unless that subject line is really compelling. And yet you certainly don't want to put an attachment in there because they're very unlikely to open an attachment, especially if they don't know you. So there's these types of things to consider that I think have caused some researchers to have a lower response rate than they would like, or maybe a slower response rate, and then they revise their approach, and then, oh, all of a sudden they, you know, have more volunteers. So that, that's the, um, the first thing is the flyer or the email. The second thing is the data collection format, which I already hit on earlier. And the bottom line is offers participants flexibility when possible. Everybody is super busy these days, more so during these times with the COVID-19 and everyone um, feeling a bit more stressed or like they have more childcare responsibilities. So anything that you can do as a researcher um, by maybe offering them a phone option or um, in some cases, an email option that goes a long way, uh, rather than just assuming that you're going to need to have them meet with you um, in order to be part of the study. Oh, and also cutting down on unnecessary meetings. Sometimes students have this idea that, well, first I'll meet with them to explain the study, and then I'll meet with them again to, uh, <laughs> to do the data collection, and then I'll meet with them again to do the member checking, and that's a lot of meetings. And if you could conduct any of those touch points virtually or by phone, it, it just does a lot to respect the participants' time and increase the likelihood that people will perceive that they have the time to do your study. And then the final issue when it comes to maximizing participant response rates is to consider giving a thank you gift. And I'm, it sometimes surprises me how controversial this is, even though um, I think we can all recognize uh, you know, what a gift time is when people are able to share 30 minutes or 60 minutes with a researcher for a study. Um, and a typical gift in, in the studies that we have, which you know tend to be uh, an hour or less interview or you know usually 30 minute or less surveys, um, a 10 to $20 gift card is what I see most often. On the upper end, uh, towards 20 when you know maybe there's also a member checking step or it's the interview could possibly go longer than an hour. Um, and we don't have any requirements or like strict rules about the amount. And it certainly can be tricky in international situations to try to figure out what an appropriate amount, gift amount would be. But the guideline that I like to use is think about what it costs to have a nice meal. And, you know, 
that's why ten to twenty dollars is a comfortable amount. The highest amount we've ever proved for an interview study or for a social science study was fifty dollars. Wow. Yeah, and that happened to be a study of female engineering executives, and the student just perceived that this is an extremely busy group and their time is extremely valuable, and that she just wanted to offer that to to her group and and as far as I know she got her participants and uh, timeline she desired but um, it's just more common to do ten or, or twenty dollars and it should not be cash it and it should be a gift card um, and Visa and Amazon gift cards are the most popular it's also pretty popular to offer a coffee gift card though that has some obvious limitations since not everyone drinks coffee uh, a couple times we've advised studies involving kids that we've advised well like with the researcher wanted to give a mcdonald's gift card <laughs> i'm like maybe that's not the best option considering it's a study on obesity um but <laughs> there's 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 flexibility there you know we're counting on researchers to know their population and um again it's certainly not required and we have never pressured a student to <laughs> a, provide a thank you gift but um it, it does go a long way, I think, to helping the participants feel like their time is recognized and appreciated. And certainly if they are back in the days when we were able to have face-to-face -face data collection, it could help cover gas money or transportation costs. And I would say the one last note on that is that um, gift cards still should be provided even if they don't answer every question but it is okay if you require that they complete the study, like if there were multiple phases of the study, um, as long as you state up front clearly in your flyer and your consent form that, okay, you get the gift card at the end. So as long as there's clear communication, it's fine. Well, you covered so much information today. Thank you so much, Leilani. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by audionautics.com, and I'm Dr. Lee Statlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Center for Research Quality. Mm -hmm.